brings a smile and an approach to life that you did not have that is so special. And that's what I want you to understand about this letter that we're going to look at. It is an incredible thing that God would use Paul to write that to those people and then allow us to benefit from it as well today. You know, in much... Uh, in, in, in an incredible way, these words in this letter were personal to the people in Philippi from their beloved teacher, their, their uh, mentor, their friend. And the book of Philippians has four chapters, which is just, it, it's all incredible. It's short, but it's all incredible. But we can't look at all of that today. We can barely even look at part of chapter four. And as we've been going through this series where we're looking at Bible favorites, um, what, what I'm trying to do is pick various chapters in God's Word that really stand out as a favorite for me, hopefully for you as well, and then give you some applicable pieces to it that, that you can take home and chew on and think about, meditate on, you know, whatever, dwell on, and then hopefully be inspired to go, you know what? That's really cool. I need to dig into that and read some more of that. And I hope you'll do that with the book of Philippians, um, in particular chapter 4, today. It's an incredible book, an incredible chapter. You know, interestingly, Paul uh, seems to have written this book mostly to encourage his friends, even though he ironically was in prison. Think about that. I mean, most people, when they get down, which we would think being in prison would lead you to feel a little bit down, you're incarcerated behind bars, and yet Paul, rather than feel sorry for himself while he was behind bars, writes a letter to friends of his, and get this, it's a letter primarily about encouragement, about lifting other people's spirits, about helping them find joy and excitement, that kind of thing. And speaking of joy, how about this? Picture a baby in its mother's arms. Okay, so she's holding this little baby. The baby's rested and well-fed, lying there looking up at mommy. You know, mom's looking down with unspeakable love at those precious eyes and as she's holding her son or daughter, looking at that baby, maybe touching the cheeks or the head of that precious baby, all of a sudden, big old smile comes out on that baby's face that just melts your heart. Ever been there? I would guess a lot of you parents have been there and you know what, I, what that's like. Or how about this? Imagine, imagine a father with his son, maybe he's three years old or so, and they're wrestling playing around on the carpet on the floor, having fun together. And as the wrestling moves by dad turn into just, just tickles, everybody starts dying, laughing. They're having so much fun. I've been there, done that a lot with my boys when they were little. Now they can all out-wrestle me, so I don't do that anymore. But, um, but uh, these are pictures of joy to some degree. Contentment, security, a sense of peace. Sometimes they involve laughter, but joy can also be discovered in pain, in struggles in life, because joy is deeper than just happiness. Joy can even be found at a funeral, knowing through tears that your loved one is now in the presence of Jesus. There are no better arms to be in than in the arms of Jesus. And, you know, or, or joy can be found in a hospital bed, knowing that the Lord is standing there right beside you. Joy can be found at an unemployment office, knowing that God will, as we read in this chapter, verse 19 of Philippians 4, that God will meet your needs according to His riches, the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. All your needs, He'll take care of them. 
See, true, true joy runs deep and strong, flowing from a confident assurance in God's loving control. Regardless of life's situations, you can find joy and peace in Christ that goes beyond, I mean, way beyond anything this world can even begin to wrap its mind around, let alone try to offer you. This world can't offer it. It can't even comprehend it. But God's Word talks about a joy that is beyond, that is available and it's amazing, and that's what I want us to look at this morning today, because joy dominates this letter to the believers of Philippi that we're going to look at, the book of Philippians. In fact, the concept of rejoicing, or the word joy, appears 16 times in this four-chapter short little book, and I want us to look at it together this morning. You know, verse 4 of our chapter Paul even says the word twice. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And again, he's writing that from prison. Isn't that crazy? You know, this chapter is so rich. It's one of my favorites, kind of like Romans chapter 8 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. I, I just love, you know, or, or, or uh, um, Psalm 51 that we looked at the week before that, when David, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, um, and he walked through this angle of forgiveness and connection again to the Lord after repenting, um, or Isaiah 40 the week before that when we talked about how big God is, or, or Hebrews chapter 11. I mean, the incredible Hall of Fame chapter in God's Word. I love all of these, and we can't really cover any one whole chapter thoroughly, but again, I hope that maybe this will whet your appetite and you'll go, man, that's awesome. I need to go home and study that some more. Philippians as a whole is an incredible book, but Philippians chapter 4 is the chapter I want to look at with you this morning. But let me first just lead us in prayer like this. Lord, with our eyes closed and uh, heads bowed, Father, would you just at this moment look down upon your people here sitting together and just help us to hear and understand what you want us to from your word. As I like to say often, Lord, help me to have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to that can receive whatever you want for me. And I pray that for all of us, that you would help us to be sponges and to take in whatever you want for us, to set aside any of the distractions or other thoughts that, that tend to kind of complicate things and help us to just listen and hear your word. I want, Lord, that's what I want in my life. And I pray that we all in that same way can desire that, to just let you speak to us and to then act upon it. So, Lord, speak to us. We're listening. Help us to be good listeners and good at putting into motion these things. And we pray in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. And we all together said, Amen. All right, here it is. Philippians chapter 4 begins like this, verse 1. Therefore, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, whenever you start something with the word therefore, it's referring to something already talked about, which uh, Paul is referencing what he just talked about in Philippians 3. But anyway, he says to begin this chapter, Therefore, my brothers... You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, this, or that, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Stand firm in the Lord, he says. You see, because of an amazing and, and a variety of certain promises that he has just talked about in chapter 3 and, and before that, he begins here with that word, therefore, connecting the dots and telling them that because of all of that that he just talked about, they need to therefore stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm against whatever might come their way, which would include divisiveness or uh, persecution and things like that. And in verse 2, he starts to talk about where he's going with that, about a controversy, about division. 
Look at verse 2. He says, I plead with Eudica, Eudia, i got to say that right, Eudia, and I plead with Syntyche. How about that? If you have any, anybody in here getting ready to have children, those are two names you might want to think about. There you go, Eudia and Syntyche, to agree with one another in the Lord. I plead with them. Yes, I, and I ask you, uh, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement in the book of life, whose names are in the book of life. That's a super powerful, super important phrase we'll come back to as we close after a while. But first, you know, I want you to understand this. Paul uh, is want, God is wanting to say through Paul here some important stuff that we all need to understand. We need to really think about. First, just like Eudia and Syntyche, there are lots of Christians who disagree with one another. Have you ever had a disagreement with somebody else? A, another godly person? I'm not talking about somebody that you think of as a pagan, but a brother or sister, somebody you love, but you've still had a pretty sharp disagreement. Yeah, that's what's going on here. There are all sorts of things that actually it's okay to disagree about. It's not wrong to disagree with somebody. In fact, this is somewhat similar to when Paul, who again is writing this, disagreed so sharply with Barnabas, a brother of his, um, that they parted ways. They disagreed about whether or not to take a young man named John Mark, who had, who had, who had in his youth abandoned them on one missionary journey, and so they contemplated taking him again. Barnabas said, yes, he's grown, he's matured, he's ready to go. And Paul's like, I, you know, not trying to be rude, but I don't trust him anymore. I don't want him to come with me. That's my paraphrase. And Anyway, and they disagreed about it. It's all in Acts chapter 15, if you want to read that. But it wasn't that one was right and one was wrong. These were godly men who disagreed. It's okay to disagree sometimes. It's how we handle the disagreement. Well, in this case, similarly, that seems to be what's happening here with these two ladies. Their names are written in the book of life, so they are godly Christian women. In fact, Paul says that they have been, therefore, the cause of the gospel. And he strongly emphasizes that whatever it is that's coming between them is not that big of a deal. He doesn't even acknowledge what it is. He doesn't even talk about it because apparently it's not that important. And he basically is trying to say, let it go and focus on what really matters. You know, as Rupertus Meldonius, there's another great word in case you're getting ready to have a child someday, Rupertus, I think maybe that's how you say it. Rupertus Meldonius once said, and by the way, just... You probably have never heard that name. He was a relatively undistinguished German Lutheran theologian of the early 17th century that I think said this following quote. Some have attributed this quote to Augustine, but as I've studied it, I think it was actually Mr. Meldonius, but it doesn't really matter. But here's the quote. Very wisely, he once said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity, or in other words, love. Great wisdom within that. You see, there are certain essentials in life, but of course, I think if you think about it, we'll all admit there are way more non-essentials than there are essentials. And as I often have tried to explain to people in the past, you know, even if you're dealing with a true essential when you disagree, if you disagree with somebody else, even if you're dealing with an essential, which oftentimes you're not, but even if you are, and secondly, even if you're the one who's right, which oftentimes you're not, but even if you are, even then you can be a walking oxymoron in that you are right and wrong at the same time. You might be right about all the facts 
It might be an essential, a really important thing, and you might be the one who's right, but if your attitude stinks, you're still wrong. We need to practice love. We need to show and deal with our disagreements or whatever it is in a loving way. But again, there are essentials that we cannot waver on or be flexible on, like the virgin birth or the inerrancy of God's Word or, or verses like John fourteen six when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. These are essentials. These are not debatable things. Or as Mac Owen talked about last week, the gospel, which is so simple, something we need to also stand on firmly, that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and that Jesus came to this world to pave the way for us to be forgiven. He came and lived. He was born of a virgin. He came and lived and died for us, but He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave to conquer sin and death and pave the way for us to receive forgiveness so that we could live forever with Him if we will just surrender trust Him with all that we have and surrender our lives to Him. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's simple, and it is an essential. We need to stand on such things, including, of course, the resurrection. These are examples of essentials, but there are lots and lots of things that are non-essentials, and generally speaking, it is the non-essentials that most disagreements tend to be about. It is usually things like that that we struggle with. We don't even know what these two women here in Philippians chapter 4 were disagreeing about. Paul doesn't even talk about it. It must not have been that important. It's clear it was probably some kind of non-essential. And non-essentials are almost always what people disagree about. Anything from what translation of Scripture is the best to what color the carpet should be in the church building. You know, stuff like that. I had a uh, I've had a bunch of conversations lately with Christians who have strong emotional opinions um, and disagree about things in the context of politics. No, I'm not going to get all political and talk about all that right here, right now. But I have friends that lean left, others that lean right, some just a little bit one way or the other, some a whole lot one way or the other. Um, and people get pretty fired up about that. And some of those issues or talking points can be categorized as essentials. They're very important. Others are not really essentials. They're more non-essentials. But all of them need to be things that when we talk to people about them, we do so with love in the right way, not a battering ram with people or hitting people over the head with the Bible or any such things. You know, I know a church that split over whether or not it was acceptable to have the communion table moved to the back of the room. We have a communion table sitting back there in the back right. It used to be up here in the front. The Bible doesn't even talk about communion tables talks about communion, but not about some specific table. And I knew a church that decided at one point for practical reasons, or some of them decided that we're going to move it from here to there or there, wherever, somewhere in the back. And other people are like, no, that's like horrible. That's heresy. That's a terrible thing. And they had a church split over it. Half the people went one way, half another way, and both churches ended up struggling as they moved forward because of their inability to handle that situation you know, God's Word is clear that we all, just like these two ladies here in Philippians chapter 4, need to stand firm on the essentials of our faith, but also learn to be willing to agree to disagree on the non-essentials, and also be humble enough to admit that we're not always right. We don't know everything. Does anybody in here know everything? Come on, raise your hand if you think you do. I know some of you probably think you do, but nobody knows everything. Nobody's right all the time. Romans 12 says, verse 3 says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Pretty clearly inferring, most of us do that. 
We think more highly of our own thoughts and our own opinions than we should, and we need to practice humility. The Bible teaches that we need to be humble enough to admit that maybe, just maybe, some of the time, the other person is right. Maybe they're right. Now, maybe not. But sometimes the other person is right. And whenever we are in a disagreement, we need to, we need to think that way. We need to be humble enough to acknowledge that. And we need to understand that, you know, here's what generally happens. Most of the time when we're in a disagreement, we tend to think, man, that guy is such an idiot. He's so stupid. What's wrong with him? How can he not see the truth or whatever? And yet be humble enough to recognize, you know what? Sometimes I'm the idiot. Have you ever been the idiot? I have. Yeah, different times. We don't see that, but we need to be quick to say, Lord, help me to be humble enough to recognize that that is definitely a possibility. Most disagreements are not hills worth dying on. As I've said in the context of teaching about marriage, including Kim and I's marriage, the wise person says, I'd rather win her heart than win the argument. And I think that's true not only in marriage, but in most relationships. There are times when there are essentials that we need to be standing firm on and be clear about, but most of the time we need to say, you know what, this is not the epicenter of the battle. This is not the real deciding factor of the war. This is not a hill worth dying on and try to win the heart of the other person more than to win the argument. All right, verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He says it twice. Uh, to me, it sounds weird that that would come from a guy in prison. That would be that emphatic, that focused on joy when he's in prison. But Paul's attitude teaches us an important lesson, and that is this, that our inner attitudes do not have to reflect our outward circumstances. Our inner attitudes are not to necessarily connect with our outward circumstances. Paul was full of joy because he knew that no matter what happened to him in prison, Jesus Christ would be with him forever in heaven. And that's what matters most. No matter what happens on this earth, it's what happens beyond this earth that matters most. Even if a pandemic circles the globe. Heard any talk about that lately? Even if the stock market crashes, you know, whatever, you, you name it. These are not the primary things to focus on in life. I'm not saying they're irrelevant, but I'm saying they're not the primary things. James even told us, the brother of Jesus, he told us in James chapter 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And Paul went on in Romans chapter 5 to connect those dots and say, and perseverance leads to character, and character leads to, um, to hope, and hope leads to, as we talked about in Isaiah chapter 40's sermon about that a few weeks ago, leads to soaring on wings like eagles. I mean, this is what God wants for us, to focus on the right things. You know, I would tell you this, without hard stuff, you cannot grow. If your life was all, if Jesus or the Lord answered all the prayers the way everybody wanted, which is oftentimes, Lord, help me not go through that. Lord, please fix this issue. Heal that person. Fix the unemployment thing here. You know, whatever. If, if God answered all those, press, all those prayer requests and we never went through anything hard, we would all be weaker than weak. I mean, it is through the hard stuff that we grow. 
One of my favorite books ever is Through the Eyes of a Lion, written by a guy named Levi Lusco, a pastor that I met a few years ago who talked about, he wrote this book, and he talked about why and how he wrote it. Um, and it was all about how he dealt with the loss of his five-year-old daughter who died of an asthma attack uh, a couple of days before Christmas in his arms as he watched his little baby girl die in his arms. And he wrote that book and had all kinds of great things to say, but at one point one of his quotes that really stood out to me was he said, you know, smooth seas never made a great sailor. You don't learn how to be a great sailor by sailing on glassy water. It's through the storms in life that you grow. All right, well, verse 5 of Philippians 4 continues. God says, let your gentleness, gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. You know, Paul encouraged the Philippians to be joyful over and over, 16 times in four chapters. But joy is not always visible to other people. I mean, it's great, but it's not always visible. Whereas gentleness is a tangible for the most part. It's a visible thing. So Paul encouraged the Philippians to let their gentleness be seen by everyone, especially those outside the church. You know, the Greek word for gentleness is uh, epiakase. I think we can put it on the screen there. It is epiakase. It's also translated moderation. And it's a difficult word to translate in order to capture the full meaning. Words in our language like forbearance, forbearance or leniency or compassion. These are words that come close, but they still don't quite nail it down. Epiakase describes someone willing to yield his or her own rights to show consideration or gentleness to others. You know, most of us tend to find it easier to be gentle with some people than others, but Paul commanded gentleness toward everyone. You see that? Everyone. Not just those that it's easy with or those that you already like or those that are going to scratch your back later with everyone. In fact, Paul uses the same word in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, when he speaks of the gentleness of Christ. Jesus was gentle. He was Almighty God, and yet He was gentle. Now, Jesus never sacrificed truth in order to be gentle, but He did have a humble spirit that often even disarmed those that were set out to be against Him. That's why we read in 1 Peter 3, but your heart's But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Set apart Christ as Lord. He is who you focus on. Be like Jesus, is what Peter is saying. And then he goes on to say, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with epiakase, gentleness, gentleness and respect. Paul also talked about in Ephesians 4 about how we need to speak the truth, but do so in love. I'm not talking about watering anything down. Speak the truth, but do so in love, as Jesus did. And then we come to probably my favorite part of the chapter, verses 6, 7, and 8. When you go through hard stuff, these verses are often quoted, and maybe just right off the bat they're helpful for you. But for me, when I, like when my mother passed away when I was a young guy, this did not resonate initially. I struggled with this because I failed to understand certain elements about it that I want to explain. The verse simply goes like this, do not be anxious about anything, but with everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts, your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, in other words, God is saying here through Paul, 
when he says, do not be anxious, he's saying, do not worry. It's the same thing. Do not worry. And notice this is not a suggestion. This is a firm command. You see, worry, this surprises a lot of people, but worry can actually be a sin. Worry is not something that is, well, you know, probably you shouldn't. It's better if you don't, but I understand if you do. No, God says, do not worry. A main reason that worry is bad is because it is a subtle form of distrusting God. When believers worry, they're basically saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't know that you can really come through and fix this or address this or see me through this or walk with me through this. I doubt you. That's what worry really is. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talked about the same thing. He tells us to not worry um, multiple times here. Look at it with me. Here's his words. I wish he were here to say it himself, but here's how he said it. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. I love that, verse 33. Seek first, first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you as well. We can read that and go, all right, yeah, that's good. But then again, we tend to drift back toward worry, don't we? Because worry is so natural. It just seems to be part of who we are. I read this week that, uh, that the United States as a nation has more worriers per capita than anybody in the world. We worry as a, as a culture more than anybody in the world. Well, if worry is a struggle for you, then let me tell you this. Don't worry about it because here's the deal. God gives us a formula for how to handle it. It's an A plus B equals C kind of formula. You see, people, and I'm talking primarily Christians, often talk about and pursue the peace of God which transcends all understanding that we just read about. I, you know, I, I, seek, I just want to pray that God would bless us with the peace that passes all understanding. We talk about that often, we, which is good. It's a great thing. But what we struggle to understand is that that is the end of a if this, then this kind of an equation. An A plus B equals C. You don't just jump to the C. You have to understand the A plus B first. Let me ask you this. Anyone in here like the game show Jeopardy? Do we have any Jeopardy fans? I, I like it. I, I never get hardly anything right when I watch it. But I love to watch the show. I enjoy that. Alex Trebek is incredible, you know, and all that. I enjoy the show. Well, picturing yourself on Jeopardy, with a buzzer in your hand, imagine Alex Trebek reading this clue. Okay, he reads it to you like this. 
What you receive when you and everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You click the button. What are you going to say? It is, well, you have to say it in the Jeopardy fashion, which is, uh, Alex, uh, what is the peace of God which transcends all understanding? To which he would say, right, yeah, it's good for $1,000. Now, next, you know, go on, move on, next category. But I'd say, wait, hang on, before we go on, let's think about that. Because it's easy to just kind of look at it and just move right on. But I want you to process and think about the A plus B equals C component to this verse. Do not be anxious about anything. Again, that's a command. It's not a suggestion. But then look at this. But in everything. How much does that leave out? Nothing. In everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, three key words, present your request to God. You know, the word for prayer is a general term meaning worshipful conversation with God. It's a two-way street, a worshipful conversation with God. That's what prayer is to be. And petition, which is somewhat synonymous, is a little bit different, though, in that it has a, I mean, the Greek word was used in, in, in helping humans re, uh, pass on requests from one person to another. There's a sense of need being shared, like, this is my request. There's a little bit of a difference there, the petition part. And these two words often appear together in Paul's writings. Paul used them together oftentimes. But then there's that third word, thanksgiving, that a lot of times we tend to skip right over or miss. You see, thanksgiving focuses on the attitude of one's heart in approaching God. I would tell you this. If you focus on what you do have and choose to be thankful for what you do have with thanksgiving as we are told here to do, it changes everything. If you focus on, before you ask for the peace of God, before you ask, and, and as you present your request to Him, you add to it thanksgiving for the things that you have. And maybe we're talking about tangible things like good health and food and clothing and shelter and all that. Maybe, maybe that. But more important, infinitely more important than that, thank Him for the things that are not tangible, like the gift of salvation, forgiveness, the hope of eternity with Him. These are the things that matter so much more than anything this world can begin to offer. And if we will look at that and thank Him for such things, oh, it changes everything in terms of how we look at these other things that lead us typically down this road of worry. In fact, it becomes silly. We notice it as silly if you really evaluate yourself. as Like, why would I worry about these things when God has already given me all of this. See, prayer laced with thankfulness combats worry by creating in us a totally different focus, a totally different mindset. I think Christians should come to God in prayer thankful for the opportunity to even approach Him. Again, remember, He is the creator of the whole world and then some, everything that we know to exist. Creator of the cosmos, as Mac likes to say. That is our God, and He allows us to approach Him and come into intimate, close, personal relationship with Him. I just, that, that's mind-blowing. So we get to be thankful for that, first of all, but then thank Him for all of His tremendous blessings that have already been bestowed upon us, and for the certainty that He will answer His children, provide for His children, never leave or forsake His children, bring with us, being with us to the very end of the age, as Jesus talked about, and and then as he talked about in John 14, even coming to take us home to be with him to the place that he has gone to prepare for us. 
Love that. Focus on these things. And when believers focus on this and what God's great love already looks like in their life and what is to come for them, then they have no room for worry about whether He's going to continue to answer their prayers the way they want Him to, whether or not He's going to fix that issue or that one that is around the corner. You know, He may not always answer all of our prayers the way we want Him to, and we need to be okay with that because, you know, just like any... um, any good parent on this earth understands sometimes the best answer for your child is no, right? You know that. All you that are good parents know that if you said yes every time to your child, you are not a good parent. Good parenting is often to say no because you know what is best. You know what the child doesn't understand. You know what they really need. And, and the disparity between you and that child pales in comparison to the to the difference or the disparity between you and Almighty God. So when we ask things, we need to be humble enough to say, Lord, I trust you. Whatever you say, however you respond is okay. If you say no, I may be disappointed in the short term, but I trust you. That's okay. And sometimes he doesn't even say no. Sometimes he seems to be saying no, but actually he's just saying, be patient. Just hang on and wait. You'll see down the road. There are all kinds of examples in Scripture of people that were patient, that God worked through in great ways. I mean, the story of Job or Abraham and Sarah or Joseph, you know, after his brother sold him into slavery, 22 years before any of that made any sense to him. That's a long time to wait. You know, and there are so many stories like that. I would tell you, never forget who you are praying to. The sovereign, almighty, supreme creator and sustainer of all. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. If you have ever been in doubt when you come to questioning or presenting requests and not getting the answer you want just like that, remember who you are talking to. And be humble enough to say, Lord, as Jesus prayed the night before he went to the cross, Lord, not my will but yours be done. Whatever you want is fine, Lord. His answers are always perfect. His timing is always perfect. So, again, A plus B equals C. If we take Him at His word and if we live out Philippians chapter 4 when He said, Do not be anxious about anything, but with everything, with prayer and petition and thanksgiving, then present your request to God. And then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. You know, this peace is difficult for us to really understand. It's different than the world's peace. It's the peace that Jesus promised His disciples um, and all those who followed Him. When He said this in John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. See, true peace is not found in positive thinking or the absence of conflict or in good feelings or in healthy stock markets or in, you know, the hope of a vaccine or in, in masks that you can put on your face. or any. That's not where peace really comes from. Peace comes from knowing and trusting that God Almighty is always and forever will be in control absolutely in control. Now, why does God give people His peace? 
Again, what does he say? It's because it will guard their heart and mind, their hearts and minds. You know, the Greek word for guard is a military term that means to surround and protect a garrison or a city. And the Philippians that he's writing to, living in a garrison town of Philippi, were familiar with Roman guards who maintained watch, guarding the city from the outside type attack. Um, God's peace, therefore, is like an army of angels that literally surrounds or 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 encompasses your heart and your mind, protecting you like a hedge of protection against what might come your way. Martin Luther King Jr., from an address, a speech given the night before he died, said this, Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and He's allowed me to go up to the mountain. I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. He didn't know that he was going to die the next day, but my guess is that even if he had known the future, it would not have changed his present. It's my guess. Because he understood, as we need to as well, what it means to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving to present our request to God. And then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, can guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Tell you what, that's a couple of verses you need to memorize. You need to put to memory. You know, we're running out of time, but the Apostle Paul finishes the chapter with some other wonderful thoughts. He from there goes into verse 8. As the band comes up in just a minute, we're going to sing, but he goes into verse 8 where he, t- he li- gives us a list of eight things to focus our minds on. Rather than all the difficulties or frustrations or worrisome type things in our world, he says, no, focus on these things. He gives us eight. Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What a great list. If you want to know, should I, should I dwell on and focus on that? Let's see, is it noble, pure, lovely, admirable, right, excellent? Okay, no, 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 it's none of that. All right, never mind. Let it go. Focus on the right things. From there, the Apostle Paul goes on to rejoice. He talks about rejoicing greatly in the Lord, and then he talks about the secret of being content. I wish we had time to talk about that. We don't, but the secret of being content. He knows what it's like to be on both sides of the equation. He talks about that, and then he says in that famous verse, verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. In other words, endure all things or walk through all things, not because I've got it all together, not because I am wealthy. He had been at one point. He was not as he was writing this. He said, but it's through Christ who gives me strength. Before we close, uh, my wife got home last night. Is your microphone on? Yeah. She got home last night at about 11 or 11.30 from being in Iowa to go visit her dad uh, for two and a half days or so because we found out last week, just it all happened real quick, that he needs uh, bypass surgery very soon. They're trying to get it scheduled. They can't do it right away because it's going to take a complicated team of people because not only does he need bypass surgery, but he has 17 or maybe more aneurysms in and around this area as well that any of which could burst at any moment. He would bleed out and be gone. And so they need a team where they can go in and do all that at the same time, and that's not common. That's pretty much not ever done. But they're going to do it all together at one time. And so Kim went out to spend time with him, and and as I was 
putting together this sermon and thinking about it. I talked with her briefly before she got on the plane and then did not at all until this morning as we were praying and getting ready to come out here for this service. And I go, can I ask you one question at the end of the sermon as we lead into this awesome worship song about, let's see, what's it called? Um, worthy, about how God is worthy and how we want to worship Him. My question is this, and, and she's like, wow, you owe me. You're putting me on the spot without giving me any time to think about it. I said, that's because I know who you are and I know how how you look at this. But Kim, here's the question for you. How can you sing this song about God being worthy and worship Him and love Him and surrender to Him and trust Him when you know that yesterday might have been the last time you'll ever see your dad until you get to heaven? It's possible. He's been told he has no guarantee that he'll wake up from that surgery when it happens a week or so, two weeks from now. How do you sing this song and lead us in this worship song knowing that he might not, that, that God may take him home? How do, you, how do you reconcile that in your thoughts? I was doing really good till you said that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think it's one word, and that word is hope. And it, it's not the hope like cross my fingers and wait anxiously that things will turn out the way we want them to turn out. And it's not hope like, well, I hope that the doctors are good and they know what they're doing or that he'll make it through the surgery or that he'll even live long enough to have the surgery. But it's hope in Jesus that we believe in Jesus and we follow Jesus. It's the confident assurance that Jesus loves us and that he is working all things together for our good and that he knows. And as my dad said, no matter what the outcome is, it's a win-win. If I die on the table, I'm in heaven with God. And if I make it through the surgery, then I'm here a little bit longer with all of you. But either way, we have hope in Christ Jesus. And so we're doing just what Philippians 4, 6 says. We're praying. We're petitioning. We're thankful for the years that we've had, for the relationships that we've had. But we also have that peace overcoming us that God is in control. And because of him, because we follow the Lord, we have that hope that this life is not all there is. Will you stand with us? We're going to sing this song. As we do, let me tell you this. Let me remind you of verse 3 that we read briefly and moved beyond when Paul talked about the two women who were disagreeing, talked about Clement and another, all working together. And he said, whose names are in the book of life. Now that's an incredible phrase. You see, all of this, this peace that we're talking about, that Kim's living out, that her dad's living out, it's available to all of us whose names are written in the book of life. Now, if your name's not in the book of life, then you don't, it, this doesn't really apply to you. But here's the cool thing. Everybody's name can be in the book of, book of life just like that. It's not difficult. It doesn't cost anything. It did for Jesus, but it doesn't cost you anything. And I just want to invite you as we sing and as we worship Him and sing about His glory, if you are questioning whether or not your name is in the book of life, why not reconcile with him today? Why not surrender and commit to him today? Why not say, Lord, I want to give you everything. I want to worship you, honor you, and I want to come today and make sure that my name is in the book of life. Maybe you need to repent of something. Whatever it is, if you want to come, I invite you to come with us. We'll meet you down front. 
let's worship. Let's sing. Let's honor the Lord. And if you need to respond, do it as we sing.